How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. I'm really glad to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be on this podcast with you. I want to start off with, you know, you're young, you're a millennial. Um, what interested you in end of life? That is, it's it's a really long story. And I think there's a, there's a lot of ways that I could, I could answer that question. A part of it, I think, is that I was never um, shielded from death as a, as a child. One of my early memories is uh, when I was told my father's grandfather had passed away and I was seven. Um, but I was always taken to funerals on my mom's side of the family, which is a very large Polish family. Uh, funerals were almost celebrations. It was uh, the time for everybody to get together and see each other. So I kind of learned that, that death could be a little bit of a friendly thing. There was always the sadness of somebody being gone. Um, but there was, you know, also the chance to tell stories and to remember and to really celebrate the life that the person had led. So for me, life and death have always been closely intertwined. Um, you know, I learned that a really hard way my senior year in college, I had two friends die three weeks apart in just tragic, senseless, completely unpredictable accidents. Um, you know, so here we are seniors in college supposed to be going out and taking over the world. And, um, one of those things that you do, um, when you leave college is you potentially die. Um, so that was a, a real reminder for me. And, um, I think the thing that really, took it to a, a career step was I had had a relationship with the um, Office of Ethics at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, interning uh, for them on and off since I was a freshman in college. And I went to work for them uh, several times uh, throughout my uh, my initial sort of career choice. And um, I spent a lot of time um, observing cases where people were making end-of-life decisions uh, or life-limiting decisions for their children. And I think that what what struck me then and what has stayed with me now in terms of of what I really want to be doing in this field is how little people knew and how poor the decision making matrix was. This idea of, you know, maximizing the benefit and minimizing the harms just doesn't get to the the heart and the soul of the of these decisions. And so that was really what I wanted to sort of to get at. So at the time I was um, I was actually in grad school, I was getting a a PhD in um, neuroscience with my plan to go to medical school um, after that. And I actually um, dropped out of my PhD program. I left with a terminal master's and dropped my plans for going to medical school and was talking with a friend about what should I do? And she said, you should be a death midwife. She's a, a birth midwife. And I said, what is a death midwife? And this conversation was probably, it was back in 2013, you know, since before there was a Wikipedia entry or anything like this, I had no idea. She told me a little bit about what she thought it was. And this is sort of the wonderful thing about this field. It's so nebulous and it's so new. So we can kind of begin to define it from ourselves. And so, you know, my initial sort of internet searches were turning up women, mostly women who were doing this and teaching it and had been doing this, um, you know, for many decades and it just really inspired me to dive in and find out where I fit because it just seemed like this was exactly what I was meant to do. Oh, wow. Now your title, it, it is end of life specialist. What, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, to be honest, I made it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Love> because, it. <laughs> um, 
Because no, I, I did. I, I made I made up the title because I wanted something that encompasses everything that that I do. So as I started to explore this field, it was okay, how do I support people who are dying when they don't know what their options are? So we have to start having conversations first. And this was sort of at the rise of your program and conversation program. And these things were coming up and you know, sort of really looking at, okay, so what's the advanced care planning module? And then that was leading to conversations that was leading back to my experiences working in a hospital where these conversations aren't really working because people don't know what they're being asked. They don't know what they're committing to. They don't know that they have the freedom to ask for something different. So there's a, a patient empowerment piece that I do and a patient literacy piece when I work with people to empower them to be actively engaged in their own healthcare and take control of their own healthcare decisions. Um, so, you know, so the planning piece needed to involve that literacy piece. And then there's sort of that final piece of, of you've supported somebody through through their death and they're dying and you have a dead body. Uh, and we tend to sort of forget about that that part. And um, some of the early people that I, I studied with, one of them being Jerry Grace Lyons, has combined um, sort of death midwifery work with home funeral work. And that just seemed really natural to me. So I studied home funerals um, and how to help people sort of care for their loved ones in that way. And, you know, and it just sort of keeps going out and out. What I do gets bigger and bigger. And I so I needed a term that just sort of kind of as I was still growing as a person left me room to grow fully into the role, but still sort of denoted with some authority that, look, this is studying that I've been doing. I've been working as a hospice volunteer while I'm doing all these trainings. I seek out teachers all over the world to offer me their insights on on what they do. Um, so, you know, that, that's really where that came from, was that desire to, to say, I've, I'm trained, I'm ready, and I'm here to help you. And I'm still figuring out exactly what that means, and we'll figure it out together. What I love about that title and about you is that you're not a, on the clinical side of things. Um, you don't have a medical degree or an RN degree. And talk to me a little bit about why you chose to not pursue the medical degree. <laughs> um some of it was, so I, I had studied, I went to a, a college that allowed me to have a, a very, I went to Bennington College, so a very wide background. So I studied uh, vocal performance and creative writing, along with a lot of science. I studied development, lots of things. Uh, so I had the, the solid science background. I had been in grad school, I was getting a, a master, like I said, a, I was in a PhD program for applied neuroscience um, but when I was contemplating going back and, and actually did start a post back program to sort of review the hard sciences that you need in order to take the MCAT, I had never taken physics and I um, had really struggled with OCHEM in college and revisiting those two subjects was just couldn't do it, didn't want to do it. And I, it, it just occurred to me at the time that if, if two subjects were enough to make me say, I don't want to do this. And then what I, I didn't really want to be a doctor. And I had always felt a thrill. Um, so this, I was in the Boston area and, and sort of the Longwood medical area, sometimes called the miracle mile or the medical mile being down in a part of there is just sort of this amazing feeling. But when I was of, of this wonderful medical machine, that's it's, it's creating miracles and saving lives. But then you get inside that and you see the human cost of that. And you see that so much of what's happening on the technology side hasn't taken into account the humanity of the people that it's being applied on, especially when you work with children. This becomes very, very clear. Um, 
And so I think that I had just had sort of fallen out of love with this idea of wearing a, a white lab coat and striding confidently through these halls and being in part of the machine in that way and was really drawn more to the idea of how do I help these people? Uh, you know, how do I sit with them as a human and help them navigate this process? And it ended up actually, you know, I, I have uh, done training specifically in, in pregnancy loss, and I feel comfortable working with people who are supporting dying children. But, you know, most of my work is with the with the elderly. But that I mean, it's translated over into this idea of just meeting someone as a human and showing up for them. Had I gone to medical school, I just wouldn't have had the time to do that. And that's what really, you know, sets my soul on fire in terms of, you know, what am I doing? Well, you know, this is the crazy thing is that Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, she is the one who is credited with the modern day hospice. She created that outside of the medical model. She didn't want it to be part of the system. Now, over the years, we have sort of forced it into the medical model. And and so I, I believe you're on the same philosophy and the vision that Dame Saunders had at the time. But do you feel some barriers when you are not from a clinical background? Because I'll have to admit that I do. But I'm glad that I do. You know, I, I think a lot of the times I feel those barriers and I just sort of run them over. Um, I love it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's very much there. You know, there is there's sort of a sense of who am I? What am I doing here? And I think people that don't know my background um, are uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, I'm discussing, you know, maybe drug dosages or, you know, should we be trying a different medication? Um, I never, you know, if, if I'm a hospice volunteer, I would never bring that up with a family. And usually when I'm speaking, even with a family that I'm working with, I don't put that knowledge on them. What I do is I try to lead them to a conversation where they ask the hospice for that knowledge. Um, but you know, you, the, the, there's definitely sort of this idea of, um, you know, who are you and, and what are you doing here? And, and what do you know about all of this? And, and I think that there are some barriers to this idea that, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't gone to medical school. I haven't studied this. Uh, how, how do I know? And, you know, what's sort of ironic about it is it's dying. You know, what, what do any of us know about dying? We, so I think that, again, this idea of somehow going to medical school makes you better at something that we know nothing about. It can close off, I think, a lot of the openness that's meant to be there when you show up for someone and be to be with them on the journey and really let them lead you on the journey the way that they need that journey to go. Um, and, and so, yeah, I really agree that with the, with the original vision and I hope that there's a, there's a new paradigm coming where there's room for people like me to be supported by medical people, because certainly there's a role for palliative care to play in, in, in the end of life. Um, and we need some medical experts, but um, that I, I do hope that there's uh, a space where I can sort of show up and people say, oh, good, you're here instead of, you know, getting kind of the funny looks. They will. You know, when people go to even, you know, nursing school, um, medical school, they, they learn a whole new language. And I believe you can be an interpreter. Um, I call it med speak. Um, and, and a lot of people who are clinicians um, know that med speak very well. And we fall into, even me, being around hospice and the jargon, the diagnosis, and I can talk it too. But 
the normal day human being, when you start talk about drugs or diagnosis or, you know, very med speak language, people are left behind. The nor- everyday person is left behind. They don't understand what they're hearing. Uh, and I believe it's also a fear of them allowing the clinician to let them know they're confused. But you, to me, your, your specialty is you can be the bridge for that. And that's what I love is that you can be talk the med speak, but you can turn around and talk everyday language and help people understand what they just heard. And I, and I really try to do that. You know, I think that, you know, being an interpreter, being a bridge is, is an important part of what I do. And I think that's why it's so important to me that all the questions come directly from a patient. They may ask me to be with them or help them write out a list if they want to go back to their doctor, but I want them to feel comfortable asking those questions because there's such a pressure. Doctors are seen as authority figures. They have all of this knowledge. So there's such a pressure to conform when a doctor tells you this is what you're going to do, I think a lot of people really feel this idea that, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. And, um, you know, they get prescribed drugs that they don't even know how to pronounce, let alone what are they going to, you know, do to help them feel better? What are the side effects? And are we really, you know, is this really necessary at the time that just because the doctor's <laughs> just because a doctor has told them that it's something that that um, there's that And I think that the other thing is is that people are terrified a lot of times at the end of life. And my model has always been the more you know, the less room there is to be afraid. And the less room there is for fear, the more room you have for love. And I know that it can sound a little hippie. I I do live in Vermont by choice. Um, (laughs) You're so adorable. (laughs) But I sort of operate on this default model of of informed consent. So, you know, in terms of... (laughs) being in terms of being an interpreter, that's that's really where it comes from is this idea of informed consent and confronting the idea that when we do patient centered care, we're not all we're doing is putting the patient at the center of a bunch of things that are coming at them. We're not collaborating with them. We're not letting them lead. And really, they need to be leading. And so how do we find ways to allow them to lead? I cannot tell you how many times I have begged for patient inclusion and collaboration. And, and to tell you the truth, I just don't like that thing patient centered. Um, it, it sounds like there's a, just a bunch of, you know, people around a bed telling someone what to do, but t- patient inclusion, I think, I think that's where people need permission to be a part of the conversation. And yet you and I know they don't need permission but I think people need to be invited into the conversation because they trust the doctor, they trust the nurse. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the big thing that you are doing is helping them feel okay to ask those questions. And yeah, I would really add trust the doctor, trust the nurse, and most of all, trust themselves. Mm, good point. Yeah. And I think that what I, what I try to do in order to, to help them feel that trust is just to listen let them speak, let them ask the questions. You know, sometimes there are very, very long silences um, when I'm working with people because I don't feel the need to push a conversation in one direction. I don't have a clock. I mean, you know, some people I do work with pay me by the hour, but you know, there's no clock that's, that's ticking away that I've got to get to my next appointment. I am totally focused on them and I give them the space to let whatever is on their mind unfold in the time that it takes. And whether I'm doing a planning session with somebody that's in their fifties 
or I'm sitting at the bedside of somebody who's dying from, you know, advanced Alzheimer's disease. I give them that same amount of time because everybody has something to say. We just need to learn how to listen to it. And when people feel listened to, they feel empowered and they feel comfortable using that voice. And there's almost no space for that in, in, in the medical model for, for anything, you know, but, you know, especially dying. Oh man, that was said so lovely. I, 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 uh, I get what you're saying and I totally agree with that. Um, so what really is interesting is that you are helping people with advanced care planning. You're helping people kind of interpret this medical language, but you're also a part of this huge green burial movement in Vermont. So talk to me a little bit about what you've done to create this whole movement in your hometown. I can't, I can't claim sole credit for that. Uh, it had started a little bit uh, right around when I was moving up here. Um, it, what drives me to it is it's the same idea of choice. So there was actually a law on the books or a couple laws on the books in Vermont that made what we consider green burial, not a legal option, which is um, just unacceptable. I think everybody should have a choice that's reasonable, especially when it's beneficial to the environment. Um, you know, and, and part of that is allowing people to speak about their wishes for their dead body, you know, again, is, is a way for them to make a choice to be heard and to feel like their life has had meaning is for their final act is to allow their body to, um, you know, go back into the soil. Um, it just, it really captured my attention that the law needed to change. So the series of laws had been changed in 2015 at the last law um, that needed to be changed had sort of just sort of fallen by the wayside. And somebody asked me, would I pick it up? And I said, sure. Uh, not really knowing what that meant. Uh, embarking, I learned a lot about um, what it takes to be a citizen champion of a bill, what it takes to, to get a bill passed, how state government works. Um, what they teach you on Schoolhouse Rock is really not um, <laughs> not how a bill gets passed. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> you, know, just imagine, I, you know, I was walking around the state house halls. I'd, I'd pick out people that I'd see on committee or that I knew would be talking to people on the committee that had my bill. And I'd say, hey, do you have a moment to talk about, you know, what happens after somebody dies? You know, I, I was having these conversations we have one of the oldest, you know, state houses that's, you know, in, in the in the world or in the world. <laughs> we have a beautiful old state house here in Vermont. And, you know, and I'm I'm going down these hollowed halls of these, you know, respected figures. And, and I'm talking to people about decomposition. Um, and but it, it, it the first thing that, that really occurred to me is that I think so this, this last part of the bill was about changing the burial depth. So the law required burials to happen at, at a minimum of five feet. And at that depth, the body just doesn't go through the same decomposition process. And it's not recycled into the soil in the same way at a body that's buried at a, at a shallower depth. So that's what we were looking to change. Uh, so as you can imagine, they were really awkward conversations. Um, and I knew that the public was going to respond with sort of like, this is weird. And aren't people going to, you know, aren't coyotes going to dig up the bodies or teenagers going to dig up the graves um, and, and that sort of thing. So the first thing I thought about was, OK, if I'm going to take this bill on, I need everyone in the state to know why I'm doing this. And I set up a statewide tour. I set up a, a 20 minute PowerPoint presentation. I found a short documentary that I could screen that sort of showed what Green Burial was all about. I screened the documentary, I did 20 minutes of talking, and then we had a whole hour most of the time of people asking questions. And I did this for three months. I traveled all around the state. I talked to over 100 people. 
uh, which in Vermont is a lot, um, and and built up a huge mailing list and a huge following. And by when the time came for this bill to be voted on, every representative had heard from at least one person that you know that they represented. Um, every senator had heard from more, and the bill passed both times unanimously. And then when it went back to the House for its final vote, it passed unanimously because of this massive weight of public support. And I think that support really came from me putting the effort into educating people and people not even realizing that they had this option. And it just resonated with who they are, giving people a choice that they didn't know that they had. And and I think that that's something that was really important to me was to let them know that they had that choice. And, and why it's so important beyond the choice is... Or do you want to take a break and ask another question before I get into the physical morning ritual stuff? No, I mean, talk to me a little bit about the the morning rituals. How, I mean, because that's just as important as the burial. Right. Yeah. So I think that when, when we start having conversations about green burial, it's easy to focus on the, the green aspect of it and people that want to have a positive impact on the environment. And certainly, you know, our conventional burial practices and cremation don't do that. And so people are looking for something else. But I think the other thing that happens is, you know, we we're getting a little bit better and I've seen a change in the way people think about dying and, and they're a little bit more comfortable with the dying process. They're a little bit more comfortable with visiting dying relatives. But then once the person is dead, there's a dead body and all of a sudden it, it becomes a dead body. And, and what do you do? And, and our, you know, sort of conventional way of dealing with this is you call a funeral home, the body's taken away. You maybe see it again at a funeral. Um, it's most likely been embalmed. Um, and, and then it's taken away again and it's put in the ground. And just in my lifetime, we've gone from even that final stage of seeing the coffin lowered into the ground to the, you know, last couple of funerals I've been at, we've walked out and the coffin's just still been sitting above the grave. And, you know, and that, and it just looks so wrong to, for me to, to walk away from that and to not see the, the final, you know, going to the final resting place, we call it final resting place. And yet it's hovering above. So I think that we've really lost some of the importance of connecting to what happens after somebody dies and creating rituals that sort of involve more physical contact, maybe with the dead body, or even just giving ourselves five minutes, if not longer, to just sit with somebody who's dead, to continue to hold their hand, um, to maybe even, you know, I've, I've know that people have done this and, and some people find this sort of icky to think about, but to climb into bed, to give somebody one last hug, to sleep with them one last time, you know, um, we need to give ourselves opportunities to integrate this momentous change. And the physical process of early decomposition is, I think, one way to do that because we see it and we can't deny that this is something that is no longer alive, that this person is gone. So I think that that's a really important part of it. And when you move to green funerals or green and green burials is there's more room to keep connected with that, to take that time, to take that moment. When you pick out a grave site yourself, um, you know, that perhaps is in the woods or is in, uh, you know, a section of the cemetery that's set aside, you're more involved with the choosing of the grave. The grave is almost always, the body's almost always lowered while you're at the graveside. Um, you're adding the dirt back onto the grave. There's all of these opportunities to physically connect. And it's sort of, I don't want to say it jumpstarts the mourning process because I don't think that there's a time frame for mourning, but it connects you to the mourning process in a tangible way. 
And, um, you know, I think there's some studies that are starting to come out now that show that those people tend to mourn in more healthy ways and have fewer incidences of, of complicated grief because they've been allowed this time to begin to integrate and to create a meaningful ritual around what it means to say goodbye to what is left of this person that they've loved. Right now, you're just helping the people in your hometown in Vermont. Um, what, what, what is your future? I mean, where do you see you going? Um, where do you, where do you see this end of life specialist? Because it is like an umbrella. You can add things as you, because what I love is that when you feel like you need training, you go get it. And so I believe that there's going to be a lot of new innovative things coming in the next 10 years, but where do you see yourself? You know, it's, it's interesting because it's already moved beyond my, my town in Vermont. And, and part of that's just the way Vermont is. It's such a small state. Um, you know, so it's already gone statewide. I've been invited to participate in uh, some educational programs, one that's based at UVM for end-of-life doulas. I've worked with the um, now three of the hospice agencies in the state. I volunteer with two of them. Um, you know, so it, it just keeps growing. And the idea for me has always been, I don't want to stay, um, attached to an institution. I don't want to be limited by that. I've wanted to be somebody that's ingrained in the community and is working with my community and for the community. I want to see change, but I want that change to be community based. And so my idea is that where I want to put my energy is into helping each person have their own good death, whatever that looks like for them, whether it's kicking and screaming or the beautiful image that we have of, you know, somebody, a life well lived and they go to bed and they just pass away peacefully in their sleep, whatever it looks like for them to have that and to have them then go in, you know, to the doctor, their loved ones and say, Hey, you know, how come we weren't told that this is something that we could get? How come this service wasn't? Because death is not a medical event. And we've medicalized death completely and we've moved it into the medical realm. And there is absolutely a great need to have medical professionals that understand and can support people who are dying. There's pain that needs to be managed. There's anxiety that can be managed through meditation or maybe even aromatherapy, but, you know, sometimes does require, um, you know, some other type of, of medical intervention. There's and I think that I really admire the medical professionals that are taking that on. But for me, it's really more about shifting the whole realm of dying into the hands of the people who are the non-medical professionals. You know, whether we end up being called end-of-life doulas or death midwives or death doulas, you know, whatever the title ends up being, because we're the ones that have the time to sit with the person and to get to know them and to really allow them that freedom to express themselves fully to support them in the journey. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, what, what do I do when someone is dying? And I say, you show up and you be present. But that's really, really hard. And that's exactly what I've trained to do. And I'd really like for that to become the forefront of how we deal with death and dying, for that somebody to get immediately assigned to somebody like me or with skills similar to mine to review what it is that they want, how they want to die, to be supported throughout the process, and, and to be supported with what they want to happen to their body after death and have support coming from other angles, um, but to have it really centered on them, you know, so that they are, again, the leaders and we're the collaborators with them and to allow death to come back home to the person that is dying because it's, it's, it's their death and, it, and we need to give them the power to, to have their death. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you or um, 
learn more about what you're doing, whether it's um, to jumpstart something in another state or maybe bring you to speak? How do they do that? So I have a website that's uh, kind of right now in that stage of perpetually under construction because I'm still growing a lot. I'm figuring out what works and, and what doesn't work. But I do have a website. It's up there. It's got quite a bit of information on there. Um, so my business is called Ending Well, and the website is ending-well.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. I think that's ending underscore well. Um, you can find me on Facebook as Michelle Ending Well Ashavadi, uh, which is a little <laughs> a little wordy. Um, but the best and easiest way to reach me is uh, through email. I'm really responsive to email. Um, and so it's just my first name, Michelle with two L's. Um, at ending-well.com. And that's the best way to reach me. And I, I do try to respond to everybody that emails me, um, you know, within within a week, usually within 48 hours. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. And I, on top of that, can't tell you how much I appreciate you thriving and living outside of that medical model within your town. I think you are part of a drumbeat that is happening. And it, it's going to take all of us to, to push this movement forward. And you're a part of that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.